story heavens. Look at these wonderful congregants before me, so handsome. Peak cheek, smiling wide, eyes a-sparkling. I love you all. All of you. And you do know that old Pastor Andrew would never put you in harm's way, right? And that's why I'm so upset by these false claims that scores of our congregants have been poisoned by Crocroa, the story's number one approved syrupy menthol-y boiling hot soft drink. Get out of here, Charlie. The story must be told. This story must be told. Thank you, Pastor Andrew. To prove we have nothing to hide, we sourced some of the best scientists we could find on the Facebook Marketplace, and they conducted an independent study of our beloved Crocroa. <laughs> ding, 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 the results are in, and I'm happy to report they're, quote, inconclusive, end quote. We passed the test. Therefore, the story must be told, and Tukagawa Defense Concern cannot claim any responsibility for the following illnesses. Surprise Frog Syndrome, the Pennsylvania Trots, Executioner's Knee, Early Onset Puberty Reversal, Dax Shepherd Syndrome, COVID's 1 through 18, Trumpet Lung, Dad Butt, Lactating Teeth, Spontaneous Wandering Fingers, and Uncle's Lament. <laughs> oh boy, oh boy, that's a mouthful. Your throat must be parched. Go ahead and wet that whistle with a sip of that boiling hot crocroa we've got up here on the lectern. Oh, <laughs> I will. I will! But, uh, Pastor Andrew, don't you have a story to read? Oh, doy! <laughs> Good thinking, Brother Reed. This story is titled Homesick by Thoughtless Trevor. Emma hadn't been to Manhattan since last fall. The city's after-dark curfew, combined with a 4.30 sunset, made it challenging to make the trip during the winter months. She pressed her head against the window of the cab as the car whipped through the street steep. If she squinted, she could see snippets of life on the sidewalk. A man slurped fettuccine from the palm of his hand. A couple of pups had a daytime hump in front of an empty Chase Bank. Manhattan had been hit by the blackouts the worst in the beginning, and most of its inhabitants left. The first few had brought the city together. Acoustic concerts, candles everywhere, rooftop farms. But as the stretches grew longer, the city had no choice but to confront centuries of inequality. That winter, the New York Post published photos of a well-to-do family on the Upper East Side that was executed, Romanov-style, on Christmas morning, with the headline, Manhunting, in size 75 Cheltenham font. The following April were the Tax Day Riots. The city's middle class and poor took up arms and stormed corporate skyscrapers, luxury condos, and high-end gyms. They dragged the wealthy onto the streets, but there wasn't much of a plan beyond trashing the properties and scaring them. One woman, Tiffany McGraw, a niece of Tim McGraw, who was in town visiting schools, was set on fire outside of the big McDonald's in the East Village. Her death sparked outrage across mainstream media in middle America. Tiffany became the face of the riots and the patron saint of the rich fleeing the city. Her uncle Tim released a song in her honor, Let It Burn, featuring Miley Cyrus, remains on the Billboard Hot 100 to this day. 
The blackout still happens, now only less frequently. Once a week, for a few hours, the island would be without power of any kind. Cell phones wouldn't work, work would stop, and the few remaining hotels would empty onto the streets. As the cab pulled up to the building, two kids ran past, their hands covered in blood. The steam cleared as if it were expecting her. Turvis Manor, emblazoned into the limestone just above a set of gold doors. Doors that burst open when a stocky, middle-aged man hobbled to greet her. Emma? George yelled, far too loudly, given the distance between them. Emma, come in, please. He held the door open for her in a way that required them to squeeze into the doorframe together. I'm so happy you came. We got a lot of no-shows. <laughs> Did you happen to see two kids? Uh, uh, never mind. George said, out of breath. The ones with blood on their hands? Emma said. I saw them run. <clears throat> George cleared his throat. The unit I'm about to show you is a steal. He showed her down a narrow hallway, stopping in front of an elevator made for exactly two people. That's, um, great. <laughs> Have you lived here that long? Born and raised. My family built it in the 50s. I was the first child born here. My father was Stu Turvis, uh, the founder of... Turvis Tumblers. I used to read about him in the news as a kid. <laughs> it's funny. When I was younger, I was ashamed of my wealth. Now, I'm embarrassed it's gone. That's the tumbler business, though. He gave a lot to the city before all this. We weren't one of those families that, well, you know. You're still here. That's what matters. Do you have any health conditions that would require consistent electricity? No, thankfully. The two walked down a silent, brightly lit floral print hallway. On the corners of the hallway, Emma could see long scratch marks from fingernails near the wood baseboards. The blood had been washed away, of course, but she knew they must have come from the tax day riots. The videos of old rich people being pulled down the hallway by their legs were everywhere that spring. People made memes of them, so it looked like they were sliding down the deck of the Titanic. Do many people live in the building? Emma asked, trying to distract herself. Not as many as they used to be, of course, but uh, we have some families who have hung around, George said while he dug for his keys. Two bed, one bath. The kitchen is pretty new. We had to replace the floors and repaint, so all that is new. Have a look around. George stayed in the hallway. Emma didn't have to. She knew the unit by heart from the 3D tour, but pretended not to be impressed. The listing said 1100. I'd be more comfortable with nine. She said, punctuating the statement with a test flush of the toilet. Ugh. Can you do me 950? He asked without trying to show his desperation. But it was too late. He had already pitted out and his fly was open. It was impossible not to notice either. Deal. She signed the paperwork at the front desk that very day. It was hers. The day she moved in, the elevator was broken. George had to pry open the stairwell door with a crowbar. It was poorly lit, but she eventually knew where to go because she could follow her drops of sweat. On her final trip, carrying the lightest box, Emma heard someone above her in the stairwell. She carefully walked up the steps to get a better look. A man in his 40s, puffy from decades of work and drink, held his head in his hands and softly wept. His wingtips were caked in dirt and his knuckles were crusted in dry blood. The man lifted his head and looked right at Emma. 
His nose protruded in such a way that it pulled his mouth forward like a dog's snout. She could see his teeth even with his mouth closed. He sniffed and sucked snot in such a pronounced way that it echoed. She bounced down the steps quietly and with long strides, like a deer. On the first night, Emma stared at the ceiling from her mattress on the floor. The city was quiet, except for a man retching on the sidewalk. Emma would come to understand he did this every night. She once tried to look for him, see his face, smell what made him spill his guts into the sewer every night, but she never could. She would hear footsteps from the floor above, slow at first, followed by quick, shorter bursts. A family, she told herself. Door slams, keys falling to the floor, the crumple of bags, elevator dings, and the occasional yelling. Night in and night out. She found comfort in believing the building was alive. Emma never left the building after dark and stuck mostly to her block during the week. She had the luxury of working from home, notarizing for people from around the country. She told herself that's why she never saw her neighbors. Every so often, she'd get a knock on the door. Too many knocks. Like the visitor had four quick, sweaty hands. Each time, she was met with nothing, but could feel the energy evaporating from her welcome mat. She heard laughter and quick footsteps. Only once she was quick enough to see two boys before they rounded the corner. She spent an entire day working right next to her front door, standing in the kitchen so that she might catch the visitors. There was only one knock that day. It was George. He asked Emma for two eggs and he swore he was good for it with a small laugh. One evening, just before sunset, Emma returned from the store. She'd finally gotten everything set up and planned to reward herself with a decent meal and some wine. But the stillness that usually came after she dropped her keys on the counter had been replaced with a buzzing sound. George? She called. Her throat dried up. It was a slightly higher pitch than the HVAC, but a consistent hum nonetheless. As she carefully stepped toward her kitchen table, the smell of rotten bird filled her nose. The table was set for two. A single candle lit the meal, atop fine china stacked onto the table like Jenga. Her gut reaction was that George was lonely and misunderstood her friendliness for something more, and then he disregarded all personal boundaries. George? (coughs) She covered her mouth and nose with the sleeve of her coat as the meal came into view. Fingerling potatoes, wet from flies. Cornish game hens stuffed with maggots. A swollen, wide-eyed, and exceptionally dead mouse sprawled itself across the droopy chocolate truffle cake. A boat of hollandaise sauce had turned completely solid, and its outer crust had the fossilized tongue scrapings of a cat. Emma gagged and ran until she found herself surrounded by both the comfort and terror of the silent, floral print hallway. She walked down the hall looking for any sign of life. Hello? I need help. Somebody, please, help! Does anyone live here? Emma started running. Tears streamed across her face. A door shot open in front of her. It was George. She nearly fell into his arms. George! George, I just saw- Whoa! Slow down! You're gonna get a speeding ticket. Did you go into my apartment? Into your- What? Heaven, no! What happened? George cleaned up the mess right away and offered her another unit for the night. He seemed confident that a meal delivery service got the wrong apartment. 
Emma watched his empathy turn to boredom as he folded the rancid meal into the tablecloth like a bindle and walked out, as if he'd done this a thousand times. The stink lingered. Emma stood in her unfurnished living room. A cold sweat bubbled on her forehead. There was a knock at the door, but Emma knew no one was there. From where she stood, she could see the outline of the Empire State Building, completely dark, except for its deep red spire. Emma picked at her mole until it bled. A hurricane of knocks came from behind her and she jumped at the sound. No one was there. No one was ever there. Fueled only by a little bit of coffee each day, she'd walk her freezing block to try to wake up. It was one of the most populated neighborhoods in the city, which was comforting. On one of those sleepless walks, she was lost in thought and hadn't noticed the sun going down. The streets became a very different place at night. Emma turned around and headed back home. She loved when her building came into view and would take it in all at once and then find her window and walk toward it. The inside curtains fluttered, but she told herself it was in her head. She was close to jogging and the sun was just a sliver in the water. She saw a light turn on in her apartment and began to run. She was surrounded by the sound of storefront coverings being pulled down and latched. A shadow appeared in her living room. It drew the curtains shut. When she arrived, George was asleep at the front desk, with a copy of Tumblr's Monthly spread across his chest. Emma hit the bell and he shot up, knocking over everything within reach, including the bell. There's someone in my apartment. I saw them from the street. Emma towered over George. George frantically put his glasses on. Um, okay, uh, hold on. Um, I didn't let anyone in. You're asleep. George began to type much too hard on his compact Presario desktop computer. There's no one on the security cameras. Which side did you say you came in on again? Third Ave. They turned the light on and pulled my curtains shut. I saw them. A smile crept across his face, like a smug contestant on Jeopardy. He took his glasses off and carefully rested them on his desk. (laughs) Well, sweetheart, your apartment's on the other side. You're new to the city. You'll get used to it. No, it's not. I can see the Empire State Building from my- Everybody can. That's what's so great about Tervis Manor. I- No. But I look out of the front of the building, George. Your unit overlooks this side. They're all sides. What are you ta- I know what I saw. (laughs) Kid, I believe you, but I don't believe it happened to you. Does that make sense? No. No, it doesn't. I'll tell you what. Go on up. If your door is unlocked, give me a buzz. I'll be right here. I got Papa T's gun under the desk. Frustrated and out of breath, Emma walked to the lobby elevator. On the 11th floor, she carefully twisted her handle. It was locked. She quietly unlocked the door and immediately grabbed a knife in the kitchen. The apartment was dark and still. Nothing was out of place. She crept to the bathroom and flipped the light on without stepping inside the room. It was empty. She lowered her knife and went to the window. Her view had changed, or she thought. The Empire State Building was still in sight, but it was farther away than she remembered. Behind her, a light flipped on in the bedroom. The door was slightly open. Shadows danced along the far wall, and frustrated exhales followed each movement. She lifted the butcher's knife and carefully peeked into the room. A woman in her 60s, short and well-fed, had turned the bedroom upside down. 
Drawers hung open and the bed was stripped. Her face was medium rare and toxic sweat rested above her lip. The pearls around her neck swayed with each hairpin turn she took. Her bloodshot dog eyes met Emma's. Your father says we need to leave. They're going to shut down the bridges. Hurry! She grabbed a heap of clothes and stuffed them into an open suitcase on the bed. Who the fuck are you? Emma raised her knife and entered her bedroom. Sweetheart, there's no time for one of your episodes. We need to go while the lights are on. The woman pressed the suitcase lid down while she zipped it shut. Spittle forced its way out from between her unnaturally white teeth. This is my apartment. Are you insane? I'm calling the... I'm calling George! Emma yelled. No need! I'll meet you downstairs. George has the car out front, God bless him. And bring some concealer for that thing on your neck, for God's sake. You've been picking at it again, and we can't show up to the compound looking like that. She maneuvered past Emma out of the room. She lowered her knife in total disbelief as the front door slammed behind her. Her hands shook as she rushed to slide the chain lock into place. Her room was pristine when she returned, but she could still smell the woman. Flop sweat and Clive Christian perfume. Emma screamed. The sound bounced off the walls in the empty hallway, down the elevator shaft, until it reached George at the front desk, who was asleep again. She rarely left the apartment after that night, only to get some groceries and more coffee. Sleeping was no longer possible. She tried to break her lease, but tenants' rights were even less existent than they'd been before. Her days were spent in front of a screen for work, and her nights were filled with inspecting every sound she heard. George refused to answer the monitor anymore, and he was rarely at the front desk. He took it very personally when she begged to leave. One of their dust-ups spilled into the street when Emma demanded that he stand up and talk to her instead of hiding behind his desk. My home isn't good enough for you! He yelled at her. Some of the neighborhood gathered to watch it go down. George went on a tirade about how he's proud to live where he lives and that he loves the community and New York tough. The people cheered. Emma couldn't get a word in and ran back up to the 11th floor, defeated. From then on, she didn't leave, and every day was exactly the same. Emma hovered over her stove in a daze and watched the water approach a boil. It was noodle night, because it was always noodle night. The water sped up, turning over on itself and foaming. She reached to turn the burner off, but before she touched the knob, everything went black and the boil subsided. From her view, she could see lights across the neighborhood go out, building by building, street by street, a city on pause until further notice. She flipped the breaker. Sometimes it worked. This time, the only light that came on was in the bathroom, but not an overhead light. This was a soft glow. Emma took a deep, exhausted breath, grabbed her baseball bat, and walked toward the flicker. As she approached, she could hear the soft sloshing of water and slow, plucky drips from the faucet. Inside, covered by the near darkness, a long, gray old man took a bath by candlelight. He spoke without looking at her. Can you believe it? I cleaned this tub for 27 years. I've never been in it. And you know what? It's just as nice as it looks. I used to tell myself it's just a tub, but no, this is special. The old man rested his head against the marble and closed his eyes. The brown water covered his ransacked breasts and eventually reached his long oatmeal neck. Flakes of his skin came off in the tub like fish food. 
Emma was more upset than fearful of him. Tell me, have you answered the door yet? A smirk grew across his face, so long that it curled at each end. Emma pulled back and connected the bat to the man's waterlogged forehead. Again and again, Emma pummeled the man's face until his jaw dangled from its hinges like a lantern and the tub turned into a pink sludge. Out of breath and drenched in wasted brain, Emma felt a cold sandpaper hand on her shoulder. Long, ancient fingers slowly drummed on her collarbone. She reaffirmed her grip on the bat in one hand and slowly turned around until she was face to face with the man, now in a butler's uniform. A scabbed gunshot wound protruded from his left temple. He spoke with urgency. Ma'am, I don't want to be forward, but we must get you out of here. I saw in the news what they've been doing and... The butler's eyes grew wide and, despite trying to keep his composure, looked like he just swallowed a penny on a dare. Enough! Emma pushed the butler aside and stormed toward the door. The knocks became louder with each step. I'm not doing this shit anymore! Emma ripped the door open and, for the first time, saw them. Two boys in wrinkled prep school uniforms. One was tall, a dull teenager with a pencil-thin mustache and a hunchback. The other couldn't have been older than six. They had a cousinly disposition. I... I... What do you... Can I help you, boys? She gulped air between words. They looked at Emma as if they'd just then realized they'd been knocking on the wrong door. Wide-eyed and silent, they sprinted down the pitch-black hall. Emma chased after them, bat in hand. The carpet and wallpaper muted their urgency. Emma kept a steady pace, about three apartment doors behind them at all times. The boys would occasionally look back like rabbits until they reached the stairwell and went up. There were only a couple of floors left before they hit the roof. She'd have them trapped. Emma swung open the door and squinted in the freezing wind. As she stepped onto the roof, she could hear pop music blaring in double time. Row after row of stationary bicycles filled up the space. Atop each bike was a furious, dead-eyed peddler, staring toward a destination Emma could not see. Their athleisure was tattered and their skin was like paper. They did not produce sweat. Emma began to scream for their attention, but her voice was lost in the wind. What are you doing? Hey! Hey! Listen to me. You don't belong here anymore. Behind her, George took a planet-sized rip of his jewel. It's called Peloton or, or something. People really like it. You... you can see them? Listen, I don't know what's going on, but you're in a safe... Shut up, George. Emma stormed towards the small man with her bat. George waved his arms, confused by the attack. As Emma pulled the bat over her head, George flinched dramatically, and he stumbled in slow motion at first, then quickly, backward, off the roof. As he hung from the facade of his childhood home with eight plump, sweaty fingers, Emma lunged to save him. George reached for her hand and, in doing so, lost his unathletic grip. The last living Turvis plummeted toward the street, back first. He screamed, but it was interrupted by the sound of his body hitting a subway grate. His backside went through it like a garlic press. Emma peered over the edge at George. His eyes were still open, filled with blood, and his mouth wide open, interrupted mid-scream. 
a monument of silence fell over the street as George's drippings plopped into the puddles beneath the grate. The people in the street began to flood the scene. A tall man on the opposite side of the street finished retching on the sidewalk, calmly wiped the sick from the corners of his mouth, and said, She did it! He lifted his long, ghoulish arm and pointed to Turvis Manor's roof, where Emma stood holding a baseball bat. The crowd turned into a mob, and they stormed into the building. Panicked, she turned around expecting to find the two boys, but the roof was empty. She ran into the stairwell. The crowd yelled and banged and chanted. It sounded ritualistic and in a language she did not recognize. Their flashlights darted up the stairwell and along the walls. When the mob and Emma came face to face, the man in front held Papa T's gun. Even though it was dark, she could see that they all had the same look in their eyes. Pent-up anger, fermented by time into madness, and finally released by the least honorable bond, a common enemy. She fought as they dragged her away. She flailed in the pitch black and tried to grab onto a piece of loose wallpaper. The chanting masked her screams. She tried to grab onto the floor and baseboards, but all she did was scratch the wood until her fingers bled. The freezing air brought her consciousness back for a moment. She got one last look at the city, closer to the ground, at a child's height. It was beautiful again. People shouted their offers above the wind that whipped through the open market on Fifth Avenue. They squinted in the late afternoon sun and foamed at the mouth as they haggled for meats, clothing, and furniture. A table stood outside the last remaining Two Brothers Pizza, where a vendor sold souvenirs to survival tourists. Tiny statues of liberties, cab ornaments, and t-shirts that said, I'm walking here. Among the junk sat a wallet, a tote, and a clutch. A set all in the same hue and texture. Not quite leather, not quite suede. Each embossed with one word. New on the wallet. York across the tote. City on the clutch. And if you would have looked, really looked, past the hand stitching, past the enormous price tag, past your imagination, you would have noticed that the dark brown dot above the eye in city had the rough, deep sea texture of a scabbed mole. The story must be told. Wow, I'm sp 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 spooked. How about you, Brother Reed? Brother, hey, Brother Reed? Hey. <laughs> How about that story? Yeah, great, 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 yeah. Um, can we chat for a sec? Urgently, like, like right now. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, take five, congregants. What's up? Someone narked us out to the Surgeon General! Oh, God. The FDA did an independent study on Crow Crower. Our lawyers just emailed us the results. We're effed, effed in the B. Shit, shit, shit. Okay, okay, no. Ah, fuck! Okay, shit. Ah, wait, okay. What do we do? Get ahead of it. I mean, I guess I don't know. Okay, okay, wait. Ah, damn it! All right, um... Okay, no. Okay, yes, I have a plan. Here, give me your phone. Let me see the results and what we're dealing with. I, I think we can make this work. 
<laughs> hey there, congregants. We just got the most disturbing email. Those fat cats in Washington want to take us down again. I know, I know, I know. In the next few days, you might hear some rumors, and they are rumors, from the supposed FDA that Crocroa allegedly has been proven to cause the following. Rat nose, assassin's feet, Rocky Mountain goat tits, Toyotathon, beaver fever, squeaky cheeks, the stepdad flu, gambler's depression, big mother syndrome, little father syndrome, stink sack, Greg's disease, hogmouth fever, tug snap echoes, plumber's despair, telephone apathy, sudden fear of appraisal, octogenarian cysts, a bad case of the Ralphs, afternoon denial, big eyelashes but little lips, and coward's tail. Congregants, we're looking at a lengthy legal battle here, and that's why we need your support now more than ever. Donate to our legal fund at www.patreon.com slash T-S-M-B-T so we can get Crocroa back on the streets where it belongs. The story must be told. was the story must be told and these are the new laws for birds help us keep our ship afloat by joining our patreon www.patreon.com slash tsmbt new law number one birds can only fly between the hours of 9 a.m and 3 p.m all nocturnal birds will need written permission from their local bird affairs office for special dispensation Follow TSMBT and the clergy on Twitter and Instagram at TSMBTPod. You'll get fun updates on the doings and the happenings of the clergy at the Story Center. New bird law number two. Birds with a household income of less than $75,000 a year will receive a subsidized worm in the mail on the 1st and 14th of the month. We have a book of psalms. Go to www.thestorymustbetold.com and get yours today. New bird law number three, birds can still shit wherever they want. That's the true reason man envies the bird, not the flight stuff. You can do that in the plane, Charlie. But to Duke Freely, holy cannoli, the power. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. And the final new bird law, birds can now wed humans in all 50 states. That's right, Cassandra. Chirp, chirp, you're the only cardinal I could ever love. Now let's make some eggs. dickheads on my street they have really loud cars it makes them really cool at them their cars are loud it's it's the it's the yardstick the yardstick of masculinity there adam that that man revving his engine oh can you hear that oh man that guy is a huge dick can you hear god i wish i were him i bet he fucks the story must be told this show is made possible by listeners like you Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com.